chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus, by the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word and for what you have given here for us. We know that that you want to instruct us, you want to lead us, you want to just keep us in that central place of, of dependence upon Christ and him being preeminent in our lives. And I pray that you would use your word to that end as we look at it together, that Christ would be exalted and that our hearts would be yielded to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I want to welcome um, a group from Pennsylvania that's at His Hill this week to help out. They're going to be clearing cedar and painting and doing other things. And, and I think there's 38 that came, and only about 8 guys and 30 girls. Something like that. So there's not enough men in Pennsylvania. So So they're down here checking things out, looking for, you know, so Chase, where are you? Uh, (laughs) Happy birthday, Chase. Anyway, moving right along. Um, We're in 1 Corinthians now, as you can see by the scripture reading. And um, last week we just gave the introduction here how the first nine verses are really all about the person of Jesus Christ. And what Paul's wanting to do is is to, before he gets into all the problems that are going on in this church, he wants to remind them of who they are in Christ and the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a rich introduction. There's no other introduction like this in any of the letters in the New Testament. In the first ten verses, ten times the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned. Wonderful opening. And again, it's, the focus is Paul is calling people back to, to remembering the person of Jesus Christ and our identity with Him. And I made the point that when we're confronting people... That is the wise way to start. Start with with that. Rather than, do you know what this sin's going to do to you? Do you know what the damage is going to happen in your life if you continue to live this way? That's valid, but that's probably not where we should start. We ought to start with reminding people that what they're doing is not consistent with Jesus 
and their identity with him. This is not true of him, and it's not true of us when we're living in sin. This is not who we are. And that's where our confrontation, our exhortation of people um, should begin. And so in verse 10, he begins with his first exhortation. And it has to do with divisions. And these divisions, as is most of the time, have to do with pride. And there are no, there's not a lot of just heavy theological sections in 1 Corinthians. It's an extremely practical book. But there are three places in this letter where Paul kind of gets theological. And the first is right here with the first issue of divisions. And what he's going to do, he's going to expound on the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, if you understand the cross, there is no place for self, there is no place for pride, and pride is the reason that you're having all these divisions. And so he's going to remind people of the cross of Jesus Christ. Later on, the next big theological section is going to be when he talks about the spiritual gifts. And in that, he's going to, to, to expound on what it means to be part of the body of Christ. So a heavy theological section on the body of Christ and what body life means when he talks about spiritual gifts. And then the last chapter, not the last chapter, second to the last chapter, chapter 15, he's going to spend the whole chapter, I think it's the longest chapter in the New Testament, on the resurrection. So those are the three big the theological sections in 1 Corinthians, talking about the cross of Christ, talking about the body of Christ, and talking about the resurrection of Christ. The rest of the book is very practical, and it's the outworking of the theology. So as you've heard me say many times, every ethic in Scripture, every moral mandate in Scripture is derived from theology. And so what is true of God is the basis for everything that God commands us to do. And so when Paul's going to say in this section, you ought to be united, he's going to bring us back to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to talk about pride, and it is amazing you know, the older I get, the more I, I see how pervasive pride is in everything. We can even be proud about being humble. And, you know, and, and, you, know you can be proud about being miserable. You can be proud about being broken. I remember talking to a guy one time, and he was telling me how broken he was. And he says, I can remember the day that God broke me. And he's screaming at me while he's saying this. And I'm going, brother, you know, maybe there needs to be another day, you know, where you're broken again. <laughs> Um, it's amazing what we can take pride in. These Corinthians here were taking pride in those people who had brought them to faith in Christ or instructed them, who had watered along the way, who caused growth in their lives, and they're taking pride in men, good men, but they're taking pride in them. Listen to this illustration about pride. $10 million was contributed to the New York Phil Philharmonic in 1973 by donor Avery Fisher, $10 million, 1973. He donated that money so that he could get the, the concert hall named after himself. And so after donating $10 million, it became known as the Avery Fisher Hall. Got his name on the building. The name held for more than 40 years until 2014 when the orchestra decided to raise funds for renovations to the hall. The New York Philharmonic actually paid $15 million to the heirs of the Avery Fisher for the right to remove his name from the hall. So that 
they could rename the venue after a new donor. So some guy donates $10 million so he can get his name on the building. 40 years later, they pay $15 million back to that same family to get the name off the building. And then a man named David Geffen stepped to the plate in a fundraising contest, and he won the right to have the hall named after him for the next generation. He donated $100 million for the honor so he could get his name on a building. Men love the praise of others. Now, Patsy and I were watching the TV the other day, and a commercial came on, and, and it was one of these dating site commercials, you know? And uh, they're kind of funny. I kind of like watching those commercials. And this woman says, all I'm looking for is somebody who is intelligent with a good sense of humor. And I looked at Patsy, and I said, man, you, you got it. You know? <laughs> You'll never need to go to that dating site. I mean, you, you won the lottery. And, um, and, I, and I said, what did you do before there were dating sites? It's amazing that you found exactly what every woman's looking for. <laughs> and then I remembered last Sunday when I talked about scoliosis of the liver. <laughs> and most, most of you were nice enough not to laugh out loud, but see, there's cirrhosis of the liver and there's scoliosis of the spine. So I have scoliosis of the brain. And, um, <laughs> So actually, Patsy only got one of the two things. Maybe not even that. Good sense of humor. Yeah, she's from Pennsylvania. So she, she didn't get it. Okay, we'll move on. But it's amazing what you can take pride in. Now, looking at the text. So Paul says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, won't heaven be sweet? Because honestly, that verse is not going to be fulfilled in its entirety until we are with Jesus in glory where there will be no divisions and we will be completely of the same mind and have the same judgment. We're not there yet. But there is no reason to not desire it and not strive for it and to really just think about what do we divide over. You know, and... Paul is going to say, coming up in this chapter, there are, there's going to be situations where people need to break fellowship. We understand that. But, you know, so much of the division that takes place in a church, number one, is not even theological. It's not doctrinal. And this, what's going on here, it is not theological and doctrinal divisions. It's not. It's personalities. It has nothing to do with doctrine or theology, just personalities. And honestly, that's where most divisions take place. We just don't like the person, or we've had enough. But even when it comes to the doctrinal and theological stuff, you know, I've been recently kind of reading a lot in a, you know, in a, from a particular group of people that, that are, you know, write theology and, and stuff, 
And it's been very challenging to me, and I, but it's made me realize, again, afresh, how even within conservative evangelical Christianity, how much is really debated and, and, and can be source of divisions. And it's sad. Um, and because, you know, because when you think about what we do have in common, the person of Jesus Christ, the salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. I mean, it's, it's, we, there's basic things that we almost all agree on. There's very, very little reason for division. And we divide very readily. And it's sad. The reason we have to stop and think, well, theologically, what is the problem with divisions? Because, again, he doesn't say divisions are bad because these bad things can happen. But divisions are bad because where Paul goes with this, they, are, they have as their root, most of the time, in one way or another, pride. Pride. And pride is totally contradictory to the person of Jesus Christ and to the cross of Christ. So Paul goes theological with us. They are not having a theological division. But nonetheless, Paul brings them back to the theology of why divisions are so bad. Because Christ is not proud. proud. He is humble. And the cross is about humility. And if we want to take it one step even further, the reason we are one with each other is because of the oneness of the Trinity. And there is no division within the Trinity. And we have been made one with God in Christ. And so why do we divide with each other? It is contradictory. It is absolutely abhorrent to the very nature of God and to the nature of the Trinity itself. So it's serious business when we can't get along. Now, we understand we're all, you know, there's a tendency in all of us to want to associate with people that we are most like. And so, in areas of theology, people tend to gravitate toward where there's more commonality than not. But it doesn't mean that we have to disparage each other. We have to be critical of each other. We have to write each other off as being heretics when there's so many issues are not even about heresy. They're just that we don't see eye to eye. We should be very careful about why we divide. So what, anytime you hear something like that, if somebody were to, were to come into this church and say, you guys need to be more united. There needs to be few, fewer divisions in this church. Well, the first thing I would think is, who told you there's a problem? What are you talking about? Well, Paul's prepared for that. And so he tells us where he got his information in verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you by my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, we don't know who Chloe is, but, and this is more than one person. This is Chloe's people. So apparently, some people from the church in Corinth went to Paul with a list of questions they had for him. Because most of the letter of 1 Corinthians is Paul is responding to issues they have raised. So these people went to Paul probably to get some things addressed. And in the process, Paul's probably said, well, how are things really back there? You've told me these list of questions, but how are things? And so it comes out, things aren't that great. That there are people who are 
disputing with each other, and they're dividing in, in things. And so Paul goes, well, that's what we need to talk about. Let's get that dealt with before we talk about any of these other issues, because that's the big thing. The body of Christ is being divided. And so here's the thing. This isn't gossip. This person, Chloe and her, and her people, they're not gossiping. They're not talking behind anybody's back. And we know that because, one, they are willing to be named. And they take ownership for what they've said. We should be willing to take ownership for what we say about other people. And secondly, it's not gossip because Paul is part of the solution to the problem in Corinth. Somebody once told me that it's not gossip, you've heard me say this before, if the person you're talking to is either part of the problem or part of the solution. And if they don't fit in one of those two categories, keep your mouth shut. It's gossip if they are not part of the problem or part of the solution. Paul was not part of the problem, but he was part of the solution. And he's in a position where he can address this, and he does so. And so he's been given specific information from specific people, and he's now stepping into it to address it. A lot of lessons there for how we should, how we should handle those kinds of things. So then he gets specific with what's going on. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, that's Peter. And I am of Christ. Wow. Now, Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus were not encouraging this. They may not even have known about it. Apparently, Paul didn't know about it. You see how, how, how subtle pride can be? They were probably doing nothing more than saying, Oh God, I praise you that Paul led me to Jesus. And another person probably said, Oh God, I thank you for Apollos. I really didn't understand how to explain my faith until Apollos came along. And then somebody else is going, Lord Jesus, thank you for Peter. I mean, that guy, I've seen, I would have never believed that a life could be transformed like a life can be changed until I saw Peter. Thank you, God, and I want to be like Peter. And somebody else just goes, Lord, I just thank you for Jesus. And people, I give them the benefit of the doubt that they were doing, that they were simply praising God for the individuals who had had the biggest impact in their life. But in the process, they were putting men on pedestals and they were becoming groupies, followers, a fan club, and Jesus was no longer preeminent. Well, what's the wrong with saying, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus? Because in the spirit of what's happening here, it made Jesus just, a, just another party head and not the one, not the head, but just another head. And Paul goes, you've diminished Christ. You've diminished Jesus. You've divided Christ. And Christ is not to be divided. Now, it's, it's a celebrity mindset. And we know there are churches that are packed on Sundays because of the personality that's preaching. That's not the fault of the personality preaching. That says something about everybody else. I think Chuck Swindoll is a wonderful guy. 
I've never met him personally, but I, I had the occasion to hear him preach at different times while I was at Dallas Seminary, and I've listened to him many times over the years on the radio. I deeply appreciate him. He decided to start a church in North Dallas after he had been the president of Dallas Seminary. He said, I think I'll start a church. I think on the first Sunday they had something like 5,000 people show up. That's because of his name. Now, he didn't make that happen. I don't think he prayed for that to happen. But people are drawn to celebrity status. We have the same thing here in San Antonio. There's some very large churches. And it's largely because of the person that's preaching, the celebrity status. It's a dangerous thing to do to a man. And it's dangerous for the body of Christ that we would become groupies, just a fan club, hopping from church to church because of the personality. It's a dangerous thing to be. Now, you don't come to a small church because you're you know, impressed with a personality. That's good. <laughs> Not much to be impressed about. But there's another side, and, and, and I'm not saying this has been true because it hasn't, but on the other side of the danger of too, exalting a person too highly is the per, danger of being, and it really, they really go hand in hand, it's just the other side of the coin, of being too critical of the person, too critical of the pastor. We had an older man that's with the Lord now, and he he used to like to tell a joke about me, and he says, Charlie, every time I hear you preach, you remind me of that, of that boy, the little boy who went up to the preacher and said, preacher, I want you to have my, my allowance money. And the preacher said, well, why? Why do, we, why do you want to give me your allowance money? And the boy says, because you must need it. Well, why would you think I need it? And the boy says, because every Sunday when we go home and we sit around the dinner and, and, and have our lunch, my mom says, you're the poorest preacher she's ever heard in her life. So here's my, my, my allowance. And he would laugh. Oh, you always remind me of that, Charlie. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> what I'm saying is that, you know, again, I've had it great. But I know, I mean, and insurance actuaries say one of the most stressful jobs that any person can have is being a pastor. And it's because it is so hard to please people. And people can be so incredibly negative over the slightest thing. You know, it was, people were always putting Major Thomas, the founder, general director of Torchbearers, on a pedestal. And um, one time, a friend of mine, older friend of mine, saw Major Thomas just really get in the flesh. He saw sin on display. And he, he stood there just watching Major just chew somebody out or something. He was just irritated. He was angry, man. It was no Jesus. It was all Major Thomas. And my friend said he just stood there and looked at him and, and just smiled. And he was just kind of grinning watching this whole display of flesh. And afterwards, Major turned on him and said, what are you grinning about? And he says, I'm just so happy to know that you're a human just like me. And he didn't write him off. He didn't say, why would I ever listen to this guy? Why would I ever read his books? He just goes, he's just like me. 
just like me. So we can put people on a pedestal and divide Christ. Or in the other way, we, we can just have such high expectations for them that we're so overly critical that, again, we divide the body of Christ. So Paul says three questions in verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Obviously, he has not. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Obviously, he was not. Why do you make me to be the big thing here? I'm not. And then, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obviously not. So then, speaking of baptism, Paul says, well, let me just say, you know, he makes mention. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Wow. <laughs> I mean, if that was the end of the sentence, you'd go, man, what preacher says that? I thank God I didn't baptize any of you people. I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize, so having said that, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should be made void. So what Paul is saying here, obviously, baptism is significant. And the church has held very consistently for the last 2,000 years that, that every Christian should be baptized. Now, the church began to put the emphasis on infant baptism for a long time, and many churches still do. But the church has been very consistent that baptism is very significant. But baptism has always and only been about identification with Jesus Christ. In one way or another, everybody agrees, baptism is about identification with Jesus Christ. It is not about the person baptizing you. It is about just making known that you are one with Jesus. If you've never been baptized as a believer, I'd very strongly encourage you to consider so. It's very significant. It is a way to publicly make known that you are one with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But Paul says, as important as baptism is, it is nothing in comparison to the person of Jesus Christ and the message of the cross. Nothing, not even the good things like baptism, should ever rise to the level of taking precedence, taking priority over Jesus himself. And when he's in saying that, he brings back now what's going to become the opening statement for really the rest of this chapter and chapter 2, even chapter 3, and that is, God did not send me to baptize, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. He's going to come back to that statement about the cleverness of speech in chapter 2, verse 1. Look what he says there. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. So we'll talk about that a little later. His point here that he's introducing is that if I came to you 
in the cleverness of speech, if I came to you with superiority of speech, then all I'm doing is, is lying. I am misrepresenting in the way that I'm talking, in the manner that I present the gospel, I am misrepresenting what the gospel is about. Because the gospel is about the cross of Christ. Now, you can go to other books, and it is the resurrection that is emphasized. But in 1 Corinthians, even though there's an entire chapter on the resurrection, for the most part, 1 and 2 Corinthians is emphasizing the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think what Paul's getting at is, don't jump ahead to the resurrection till you understand the cross. You will never understand the resurrection and the significance of it and what it means to live in the reality of it to what it means to live in the newness of life until you understand what it means to be identified with Christ in his death and in his burial. Till you know the cross of Christ, we will never fully understand the significance of the resurrection of Christ. So now, in the last part of this chapter, he wants to remind everybody of just who we were when God brought us to himself, and what the word of the cross, the message of the cross, how it impacts people. So just very briefly on these verses, verse 18, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing, to those who are not responding to God. The word of the cross, the message that Jesus Christ died, is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Those are the smart people, the intellectuals. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Where are the biggest collection of the smartest intellectuals when, we, when, we think, when I ask that question? Where would the biggest collection of the smartest people be? You typically think university, right? Where is the biggest collection of atheists at the university? Seriously. The, the Ivy League schools in particular are the biggest collections of atheists probably in the United States, if not in the world. And they're the smartest people. And Paul's saying, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This is where Diedrich Bonhoeffer, when he came to the United States for the first time, I mean, this guy had been schooled under the heavyweight intellectuals of, of the German seminaries and universities, Bultmann and all those guys. I mean, he was personal friends with Karl Barth and Bultmann and these guys, heavyweight intellectuals. And it wasn't until he came to the United States and he was walking the streets of New York and he went by a, an, an African-American church and he slipped into the back, and he heard Christ being preached like he'd never heard in his life. And he came to faith in Christ. And you go, isn't that just the way it is? His life was transformed, and it's undeniable. And it wasn't because of intellectual pursuit. It was because of the simple, profound power of the gospel. And that brilliant man became himself a believer 
because he received the simple message that Christ Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead. This phrase here, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That is a powerful, powerful statement. I want you to think about it. Just break it down with me a little bit. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message. The message itself is a foolish message. And he's going to, and he explains that. Look at verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. Signs meaning they're looking for power displays. Wisdom, they're looking for intellectual um, uh, um, whatever. And he says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, they're going, that's not power. That's weakness. And to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, they're going, that's foolishness. And so Christ crucified is not appealing. And Paul goes, not trying to be appealing. When it's powerful, you don't have to make it appealing. If they're, full, if they're not going to respond, if they're not responding to the Lord, then no amount of power in the world is going to change it. But if there's an inkling of response to God, the message does not have to be helped. It doesn't have to be made more appealing. You simply, simp- and any child can give the simple message of Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead. And it'll cut through all that. And lives will be transformed. No life is transformed for the better because of philosophy. Any philosophy. But lives are radically transformed because of the person of Jesus Christ and placing one's faith in Him. And there's no way to refute it. It is a foolish message. To those who are perishing. But he doesn't just say it's a foolish message, but he says God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. Think about that. I remember taking, you know, these classes, pedagogy classes in Bible college and seminary that are learning, you know, the, the, the um, you know, how people learn. And they tell you, every one of these classes will tell you, if you've you've studied education at all, they'll tell you, the least effective way to communicate and have people remember what you're saying is what I'm doing right now. Just talk to them. That that you need to have visuals, you need to have illustrations, you need to have have memory devices, you know, all these things, because, and then if you can get them to participate in it, then it's even more likely that they're going to recall, right? So if you want them to remember... Don't simply talk. The church is 2,000 years old now. And I think it's fair to say most church growth has taken place without PowerPoint. It really has. Most church growth has taken place because of one person with one person giving the simple message of Jesus Christ. Not only is the message foolish, but the means that God has used for communicating the message is foolish. Of all the ways that God could communicate, I mean, really, God could just speak out of the clouds if He wanted to. Wouldn't that be powerful? Because He's done it before. At Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son. At the Mount of Transfiguration, same thing, this is my beloved Son. On Mount Sinai, God spoke. 
And it thundered, and the people said, make him stop talking. If God wanted to, he could speak from the heavens, and the entire earth would hear about Jesus. That would be powerful. But he does not chosen powerful means to communicate the foolishness of the gospel. He's chosen foolish means to communicate a foolish message, so that when people do come to faith, their faith will not rest on the means, and it won't rest on the messenger. It will rest simply on the message. And they're not going to remember a PowerPoint presentation. They're going to remember Jesus Christ. You see? That's what Paul's after. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And that should encourage us all. Because it's not about how eloquent we are, how smart we are, how much education we have. It's about the message. And it is a powerful message. It does not depend on us. Verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brethren. Remember you. I mean, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't, don't, you're, you're putting all the emphasis on these, on, on these big stars of the Christian faith, Paul and Peter and Apollos. And he says, remember yourselves. You're nothing special. He says, God, not, remember your calling that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. You look at all those adjectives there of what we are. Foolish. And then he says, weak. And then, then what? Despised and, and, and base and are not. Those are five different things there. Remember your calling. You heard a message and you believed. And most of the people coming to faith in Christ are not the mighty and not the noble. There are a few of those. Praise God for that. But most of the time, it is the very humble, the things that are not, that are coming. So why would you get all your perspective on the stars of Christianity? You think you're getting something for yourself with that? You know, when, 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 you, when, you, when you latch on to, to some star, to some famous celebrity, does that do something for you? It doesn't do anything. And the reason that God has chosen the things that are not, that no man should boast before God. God didn't call you because he saw something great. But by his doing, not Paul's doing, not Apollos' doing, not Peter's doing, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us everything you will ever need. Paul says, I didn't become wisdom to you. Paulus didn't become righteousness to you. Peter didn't become sanctification to you. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, that pretty much says it all. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And Christ is the summation of each of these things. Christ is the wisdom of God. You know, I've, I, I have come to believe that if a child reads the book of Proverbs 
And it says, seek for wisdom as you would seek for buried treasure. And that child says, I want wisdom. That child will end up with Jesus. Because Jesus is the wisdom of God. If a person with all their heart says, I want to be right before God, they will end up believing in Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the righteousness of God. If a person says, I want my life to be set apart for him and an empty vessel for him to be used, they're going to come to Jesus. Because he is our sanctification. And he is our redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in the person who led you to Jesus, not in the person who's helping you grow, who's mentoring you, discipling you. There's only one person to boast in. There is nothing to boast in except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Pride is so insidious, so pervasive. So many multitudes of ways that we let pride creep in. And in doing so, we mitigate against the cross itself. We must understand the cross. And there is no place for self, no place for pride, when we think on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I am no poet, but I'm going to read you a poem from Russell Kelfer. He's with the Lord now. He used to be at... Wayside Chapel in San Antonio, and he'd write a poem after every Sunday school lesson that he taught. And some of those poems have been published. This one is from what I just went over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's titled, Why God Chose Me. It's a great summary to this chapter. Why God Chose Me. My talents, is that what he saw long ago? My talents? I see that the answer is no. My looks? Just a mirror dispels that thought. If that's why he called me, he called me for naught. My wisdom? Not even a trace do I see. Then why? Tell me why did my Savior call me? And just like the wind as it glides through the sky, a voice softly answers, yes, I'll tell you why. Because when I looked, you were nothing to see. And when I shine through nothing, then men will see me. I call men of weakness so I can be strong. I call even the downcast and give them a song. I call out of nothing so when something appears, men give me the glory. And down through the years it has been so that the world is appalled. Not many noble nor wise have been called. The poor man, the weak man, though often despised, come alive at God's touch and the world is surprised. The fruitless, the failures, the dregs of the earth become princes and kings when God's Son gives them birth. And in spite of their past or how they were raised, God gives them life and the world is amazed. Your credentials for heaven, I'll give you a clue. They're only that God has found Jesus in you. In spite of your weakness, your failures, your health, in spite of your lack of applause, praise, or wealth, He called, He equipped, He sent from above. And he made you his chosen and bathed you in love. T'was only that God in his infinite power gave us himself in that marvelous hour. When we said yes to his gift of grace and Jesus said yes as he took our place. What a trophy we are. What a victory indeed. But not for our value, but rather our need. Then let's yield all we are, all we have, all we own, relinquish our pride and come down from our throne 
and turning to Jesus, let's worship and praise that he will be Lord all the rest of our days. My talents, my wisdom, no, dear God, now I see it was grace and grace only that you should choose me. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace that has been shown to us, that you gave yourself for us and called us, Lord, into relationship with you. It wasn't because of anything great you saw in us other than a great need. Lord, it will always be a place of humility to come to the cross where there is no room for pride or for self in any degree. We pray that we be willing and ready to accept that position all of our lives, that we might truly know the resurrection power of Jesus as we are humbled at the foot of the cross. Thank you that we never have to embellish or add to the cross in any way. It'll always be foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God unto those who are saved. And I thank you, God, that you are willing to use weak people to speak a powerful message and to see your spirit work powerfully to bring others out of sin and darkness and into the life of your Son, transformed for your glory only by your power. We have nothing to boast in and everything to give thanks for. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.